This is the Sound Health Option Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is off working on the Sound Health Portal, which I highly recommend checking out. Soundhealthportal.com. Currently, they have some campaigns going. The Sound Health Portal, for me, this exciting part because I used to lug around a computer to do vocal prints. Now you can do it all online. You just have a microphone for your computer, and you can go directly to soundhealthportal.com, sign up for an account, and currently they're doing some free campaigns so that you can go in and check out your neuroplasticity, I believe, or some post-traumatic stress disorder issues. You just do a couple of 45-second recordings, submit them to sign up for a free account to do this, submit them, and you'll get reports back. And it's amazing how much information is there. And my favorite, as Sherry always says, Nano Voice is also there. I use that a lot for checking out supplements and vitamins, where I'll take a vocal print, look at the the print. A vocal print is just an audio recording that's run through the software. I look at the print before I start taking a supplement, and then I take the supplement and go back about 20 minutes to 30 minutes later and see if there are any changes in how my vocal print looks just to give me a gauge of like, oh, it's doing that, and noting later, and maybe even later do another print. Just great to have it online. This is one of those shows you're going to want to pass on to friends because Scott Stevens' book really talks about alcohol in a way that most people don't and looks at it from a view of not only his own experience in life, but also just really painting a picture that I don't think people think about very much. You're going to want to pass it on to your friends or let them know it's available. And you can do that by going to either soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, and click on the Sound Health radio tab. On that tab will be the latest show, and you can click on the link that will take you to the show notes and to replay there. And or you can go into any of your podcast aggregators. Currently, one of my favorites is Google Podcasts because it's free and they're really developing it quite nicely to be able to easily subscribe or review things or just it's really coming around really well. Or you can go to iTunes or Pocket Casts or Dog Catcher or there are so many aggregators. Pick one of your choice and search for Sherry Edwards or the hashtag talk to me guy, all one word, and you'll find there are over 700 and some odd shows. I never quite know the accurate number, but it's a lot. And this show will be there usually within about sometimes up to a couple of hours, but oftentimes it's within 30 to 60 minutes. Scott has, as I say, a different view on an issue with alcohol, and I think it's really fascinating. I think it applies to some of their areas as well. Look What the Cat Dragged In was released at the 2018 International Conference on Addiction Therapy and Clinical Reports in Paris, France. The award-winning Look What Dragged the Cat In the Rise of an Opioid Crisis, caps two years of research by the author into the escalation of opioid overdoses. It's the same root cause of every drug crisis we've observed. Cocaine in the 1980s, heroin again in the 1970s, and before that, the 1920s. And between the two prior heroin crises, a methamphetamine crisis in the 1950s, says Stevens. The thread cinching them all together is alcohol. The drug we don't call a drug or treat as the deadly drug it is. We encourage the use of this drug. Then, when users can't get where they want with alcohol, they up the ante with other harder drugs. No runner runs a marathon as their first race out. The book examines the self-regulation of alcohol industry ads, the pricing of alcohol, and its availability. Scott joins us to talk about his latest book, Look What Dragged the Cat In, The Rise of an Opioid Crisis describing the straight-line relationship between opioids and alcohol. Welcome, Scott Stevens. Richard, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the program. I was looking at my, my notes on my website, uh, and it looks like the first time I was on the show was five years ago with you and Sherry, so congratulations on the, on the program and uh, been, a, been a listener all along, and it's, uh, it's great stuff. I was I was surprised to find that myself as I was reviewing my notes because I have a particular folder I put all the show notes and I went wait we interviewed Scott five years ago that's amazing yeah. but the same for you you are you are an amazing writer journalist researcher 
you you have a focus in alcohol and recovery, but I mean you're really on task. You're out there winning awards for books, and you're you know I would use the phrase a dog on beef. You really are. <laughs> you're really on it in a great way. And congratulations to you as well, and also congratulations for the award on this book. Thank you. It's, it's such an interesting, different perspective. Yeah, it's a it's a needed reevaluation um, in terms of how we're looking at the opioid crisis today, and that we are so focused on cleaning up the mess that the cat dragged in, and we're not really paying attention to what dragged the cat in. So that's that's where I got the title of the book, and uh, it just kind of uh, developed out of the research that I was doing. You know, we've got all these aberrato responses, and uh, that's just Latin for out of anger responses for a crisis that is a tragedy. It's killing a lot of young people, and really, if we want to get a get a leash on this thing, we can absolutely continue to clean up the mess but let's let's go backwards a little bit and see what got us here in the first place yes exactly and i want i want to ask you a couple of definitions and then i'll ask a, another question can you talk about can you just explain the difference between an epidemic and a crisis because i kind of feel this is an epidemic in a certain way but on the other hand it really is a crisis yeah it's uh it's semantics uh the but the the true definition here looks at uh, the percentage of the or the portion of a population affected. Uh, by hard numbers, we're looking at nearly 50,000. By some estimates, 60,000 opioid-related overdoses or opioid-related deaths every year. Um, any for any family, that's a that's a tragedy. It's also a crisis and it's an epidemic in some communities. But if we look at what a true epidemic looks like, say the, the 1918 Spanish flu, which killed 110 million people worldwide, uh, the, these numbers are different. We absolutely have a crisis today. Um, but if we have an epidemic of opioids, then we have a pandemic of alcohol-related deaths where uh, tw two to three times as many people are dying in the United States every year of an alcohol-related death. So by by numbers, if opioids are an epidemic, alcohol is a pandemic. But however we, we slice this uh, situation as a, as a crisis epidemic, no matter how you look at it, what we have today is tragic, not just on the opioid side, but also on the side of the gateway drug, alcohol. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you about the because you use the broad term opioids, can you tell us the difference between opioids and opiates? The lines are blurred these days, mainly because of the news media. But when we look at opiate, uh, A-T-E, those are typically derived from the opium poppy directly. And uh, opioids are, uh, by definition, derived, uh, lab-made plant. For example, you look at OxyContin, there's no opium poppy in there uh, where they've synthesized in the lab the strong points of, of pain relief from the opioids and try to eliminate in the lab the weaker points. They, they obviously are going to try to reduce the addictive nature of these, which uh, molecularly, you can't. You can't have the one without the other. But in the in the great world of definitions here, the opiates are direct derivatives of the poppy itself, uh, natural. Say, for example, heroin, and the opioids are things like fentanyl, oxycontin, where the molecule is recreated in the laboratory. I know from um, I got my degree as a master herbalist in the 80s. Uh, that's how old I am. And um, I know that I, I, for a while, I collected old pharmacopoeias, which were the books that pharmacists back in the days when all, when all pharmacists were compounding pharmacists, and they had basically it was a recipe book. And you would mm -hmm. find numerous recipes for things using opium poppies, either a laudanum or a heroin or, you know, back in the day when they would take those actual compounds and reduce them out to get the, the drink or the beverage or the substance or the injection, actually using whole plants. 
instead of mm-hmm. nowadays where it's all synthetic. So, yeah, thank you. And Not a problem. There's a great phrase you use. I know we're going to get into this a lot more, but I love this phrase so much I have to ask you to define it now. Toxonomics. Absolutely. I, I wrote a white paper on that a few years ago. Toxonomics looks at the cost of a drug, a toxin, in our society. The economic cost alone. Strip out the, the real the, the terrible stuff when it comes to personal loss, losing a family member. There's no no way to put a price tag on that. And you, we we both can acknowledge that. Uh, you know, if you said a million dollars, it would be about a zillion times too low, because these are people we love. But when we look at the cost of the economy, and I looked at the cost of alcohol, that drug, to our economy, uh, it became clear that the taxonomics were not in our favor. If we look at a year-to-year, year-in, year-out evaluation of the cost of alcohol in our society, it comes out to 250 billion, with a B, dollars every single year, year in, year out. Mr. Trump can build 50 walls with that kind of money. You're looking at uh, $250 billion is the size of the gross domestic product of Norway. We have a significant dollar amount problem beyond the, the loss of life that is attached to use of this toxin and known carcinogen. And uh, as we break it down, Richard, you look at there are obviously healthcare and criminal justice costs, but the big one, the monster here, is lost productivity. Because if you show up drunk or hungover, you're not going to have your A game. There's, there's a fiction out there called a functional alcoholic, and you don't have your A game. You're not a peak performer anytime you're under the influence of any substance. But at the at the crux of this. $250 billion is about $170 billion in lost productivity because when people show up um, intoxicated or hungover or don't show up at all, you know, that, that comes into the cost of developing uh, goods, or, goods or services. So as a result, who pays more? We all do. We all have a stake in this alcohol, uh, this drug problem related to alcohol because it results in a higher amount that we pay, whether you're shopping at Winn-Dixie or online or uh, at your local Walmart, wherever you're buying your goods and services, there's a portion of that that accounts for this drug. And here, here's the killer is 60, every, every man, woman, and child in the United States could get a brand new 65 inch HD 4k TV every single year for that kind of money. So we're talking about uh, a, a significant financial impact for every citizen. Uh, obviously, we're not all going to buy those kind of TVs, but the, the dollar amount is real. Wow. I wasn't going to talk about that. I, I have to talk about this for just a brief moment, and then I have a follow-up question, or actually a okay. real lead-in question, is sure. that I used to be in the restaurant business. I was a chef for almost 20 years. And so I've worked with lots of people who were either closet alcoholics or they just considered it unwinding after work. And man, I'm, I'm a casual drinker. And so I've been, I have a scar on my arm that was, is directly related to exactly what you're talking about. An older gentleman <clears throat> who is a good cook, a good line cook, and who did something dumb at work because he was buzzed because he was not a just a drink and be hung over. He was a drink and then have to drink more to, to kill the, bu- you know, the hangover effect. And, you know, hot pan, hot oil. I got burned. I have a scar on my arm as a result from somebody exactly what you're talking about. So I've, I've seen the kind of lost productivity running restaurants or cook, being in the kitchen, dealing with people who are coming either hung over or don't show up. I mean, it's, it's crazy making. It is. Uh, and it's it's a matter of looking at safety, of course, but also uh, look, looking at the, the hard dollar impact. No boss is going to say, OK, if we need to trim costs, keep on drinking. 
no, uh, there, okay. it's uh, it's becoming a greater part of employee assistance programs, but also employee health programs where uh, we ask these days how much alcohol do you consume? Of course, somebody who consumes the way I used to is never going to be honest about the entire amount, but it, they, they look at uh, alcohol not just as a as a health factor these days and a longevity factor, but also as a productivity factor. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to jump slightly now. Okay. What was it? What was the? Was there an event or tipping point that made you write? Look what the cat dragged in. Was this part of your recovery process? Because you're actively in recovery. I guess I would call it that. I correct yes. me if I'm wrong. But I no, mean, you're right. You did you have an aha moment when you sort of realized? Wait, I I need to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Well, as I as I research all of my books, uh, beginning uh, the research on my first book in 2010, what what the early worm gets, you know, the research on that began in 2007 as part of my recovery, uh, my personal recovery from the disease of alcoholism. It's an ongoing thing, and and thank you for acknowledging that. It's a um, part. It, there's a piece of that and a piece of me in every single one of these books, and the driver behind that was was my own experience with alcohol and wondering what is the fascination with this drug? Why can't I personally put it down? What are the health consequences to even moderate drinking? And as I, as I matured in my writing through the first two books, uh, every silver lining has a cloud came out in 2012 and all along I'm keeping snippets of research that, well, it, it wasn't germane to this book or that book, but, you know, maybe maybe later on I could use it. So there's uh, there's always a, a spiral notebook with, with random scribblings and reference notes to research papers that have been done in, uh, in the clinical and academic world to say, maybe I'll come back to this. And as I, uh, I completed uh, adding fire to the fuel and... I can't see the forest with all these damn trees in the way. I was taking a little break, and here, this is around 2016, 2017, and the the news industry has just gone wild with the with the opioid story. And uh, from a newsworthy standpoint, yeah, it's absolutely newsworthy. But there's a great deal of sensationalism. And I used to work in a newsroom. I get it. I get it. But oh man, it finally, I said, you know what? I've looked at this before. I have looked at the connection between alcohol use and abuse and the use and abuse of other illicit drugs. And then I began to uh, reopen some of the old uh, research that I'd done for the first four books. And uh, the the snowball kept rolling down the hill and it got bigger and bigger. So it was uh, it was time to come out with book number five. And it's such a great it's having I, I have to regress slightly for a moment and talk about that I grew up in a classic sixties alcohol social alcohol drinking family today they'd be called alcoholics probably probably um, and as a, for me as a result of that I didn't like how adults were when they were drunk or even heavily let's just say politely and say buzzed. I didn't as a kid it was like kind of weird to see these people that I knew and loved I mean in the 60s I was 8 um so I was young and I didn't it was always uncomfortable for me uh so I didn't like it so I didn't drink until my early 20s at all and so I grew up in an in what would be called a normalized environment for drinking but I found it to be uncomfortable whereas <laughs> I in school as I grew up and into high school I I had friends who were sort of the ruffians, they would be called. Mm-hmm. And they would go out and get drink, drunk, and get party, and yeehaw, and talk about it, and have a great time. And I never found it attractive, even, I mean, or interesting. It was just not of interest to me. I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. So I was lucky in the way that I wasn't enrolled in the, in the culture of, of alcohol. But as I look at it today, and as I was reading your book, I was... That's really what I was going toward is talking about reading your book, that it's a really good read. It's not a, you know, it's not a beating over the head and you're, and you're not talking about recovery as much as you really are talking about the process of look, here's here. Alcohol is a thing 
it is you you refer to it as a drug and it, in terms of how it affects the body it is a drug it affects the you know blood sugar levels it affects the har- hormone cascade it messes all sorts of things up let alone as you've pointed out the amazing amount of cost it costs us that's just mm-hmm. shocking i didn't know this kind of numbers and it's a great read of that whole story of Talk really about the, you know, alcohol is as the as the gateway substance because that's really what the book is talking about so well is that as a as the, what I will call the gateway substance because it's so normalized in our society. Mm-hmm. And boy, I, I wrote this, I jotted this down on a piece of paper as you were talking. Normalized, that is at the core of what we're talking about with America's relationship with alcohol. And for that matter, the world's relationship with alcohol, we have normalized this. We brought it into our homes. It's in our fridges. It, it's readily available uh, here in the Midwest where you can't go to a grocery store or a convenience store uh, without seeing a prominent liquor display or an alcohol, beer, wine, uh, uh, you pick your poison there, but the, it is so prevalent and we've normalized it right into our homes, part of our, our dinner, our celebrations, our rituals for the family and for our community. There's a lot of community events here in my home state of Wisconsin that fail because they don't have a beer tent. Well, what does that say about us? What does that say about our oh. relationship with alcohol, that we can't support our community unless there's a beer tent? Well, are we that uh, – are we that – enamored with this drug and the answer is yes so if we look overall uh you know the the snarky answer here richard is what did you think was going to happen if we normalized <laughs> drug use yeah. here in this front did you not see that as this as this video plays forward that there are other consequences for other illicit drugs where the research plays out two-thirds of people who use illicit drugs use alcohol as their first drug. So that's that's bigger than smoking, okay? And, we, and we've come a long way with smoking. I, I, I can talk around that for hours because that is part of what Look, look What Drag the Cat In gets to, not just pointing the cause but looking at solutions. But getting back to the, the idea of normalizing, we've normalized drug use so much that two-thirds of people who are our illicit drug users can point directly back to alcohol being their first drug. And where did the rest of us learn to self-prescribe? Those beer ads that we see, the the uh, dad coming home from work saying, oh, I'm stressed today, has a beer. You know what? That didn't quite do it, so I think I'll self-prescribe myself a second dose of this drug. That's where it all comes from is our relationship and our, our um, acceptance of the drug alcohol and acceptance of drug use. Well, and in, in, in from my view, uh, I'll use the term cinematically, even that's old school. Um, I think all the way back to the series The Thin Man. You had this detective mm-hmm. couple that, you know, you and I are old enough, but I don't know about the rest of the audience. But I mean, yeah. <laughs> it was a classic black and white, you know, smart witty repartee great dialogue beautifully shot but they always had a cocktail they always had their yeah. martinis they had the giant band you know the giant boy they were giant glasses of uh you know a martini or something and so we've seen the amazing normalization i use that intentionally of the kinds of ads and I, and i will say i will drag pharmaceutical industry into this as well and how they how they market is they People are always happy, dancing, singing. They break into a random song for no apparent reason, more so in the pharmaceutical ads than the alcohol mm-hmm. ads. But, I mean, people are always portrayed as happy and festive and partying and having a great time. They never show the after scene. I, I still am a social drinker. Let me put mm-hmm. this in as a disclaimer. Um, but I'm still equally as uncomfortable as I was a child when people get drunk or weird. Hey, did you know there's a term for that? It is, is secondhand that? drinking, where wow. your reaction to other people's drinking. For example, let's say a mom 
neglects to pick up the kid, not doesn't physically neglect the kid, but the mom misses picking up the kid at school for a half hour because she was cocktailing with her friends. And it doesn't have to be the mom. It could be the dad as well. Sure. But we, we look at the excuse making for the mom. Oh, that, that's OK. She got sidetracked. She got busy. We don't look at the impact it had on the kid. The kid was left there wondering what's up with mom, and the kid knows that it, it, mom was was cocktailing with her friends, or dad was cocktailing with the friends. So our that is the the secondhand drinking to what secondhand smoking is. Secondhand smoking has physical ramifications, but secondhand drinking has emotional and mental um, ramifications as well. And that's exactly what you're talking about is is your reaction to seeing other people intoxicated, whether it's the the crummy jokes they tell or the stupid things that they do or just how loud the conversation gets. Wow, that's a great phrase. I, I may have to use that. That's a great phrase. And and what about the approach of uh, what I think people would call the European approach, where children are taught drinking at an earlier age, not not in a bad way, but you know they're they're allowed to taste wine or have it. And that's really how I started drinking at all. Was mm-hmm. when I was in the restaurant business, I first worked in kitchens where at the end of the night you'd all sit and have a meal and have a glass of wine. So I was really drinking as part of the effect of flavor, less mm-hmm. so for the alcohol, more so for the like, oh, try this Bordeaux with that beef and the thing, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, but you'd still be, you'd always see somebody at the table. There'd be somebody oftentimes from the kitchen who'd pour more glasses and think, well, that's too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so what about that European approach where there's, taught responsible drinking that's in air quotes okay Uh, and i'm so glad you gravitated toward that word at the end because is there a responsible way to drink a toxin and known carcinogen no you you wouldn't serve your kid a glass of nail polish remover and the as the body breaks down alcohol uh its first step is a substance called acid aldehyde which is 30 times more toxic than the alcohol but it has to go through this step long before it excretes from the body as uh co2 and water i mean the body breaks it down in steps but your body is creating a substance highly toxic on the level of nail polish remover so Responsible drinking, uh, that, that's a, a real flaky um, concoction of the alcohol industry. Well, yeah, they know their, their product uh, is, is a carcinogen, but uh, they've, they've pushed this moderation or this responsibility or responsibly drinking notion, which it, it, medically isn't, isn't sound advice. But getting beyond that, uh, you know, if we look at the European model that you pointed out, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll shelve this responsibility thing for a side here. Would you serve your kid nail polish remover? Get it down to it. If we look at the incidence of teen and young adult binge drinking in the United States where we have our model and the European uh, Union where many of them adhere to uh, kind of a a French-Italian style of, okay, let's get them used to it at home so we've destigmatized this drug or made it less glamorous. Well, their, their levels of binge drinking are exactly the same as ours. So if we're trying to protect the health of our kids uh, by um, weaning them into it or letting them see it at first in a family environment, uh, the idea that they won't go out and get hammered and and drink with their friends as much uh, doesn't hold water. That's too bad. It seems so romantic. (laughs) It's a great idea on paper, but the the stats don't bear it out. That's too bad. Um, I want to jump sideways slightly for a moment and, and talk about you, you talked about in the book, but also you mentioned here about how we've changed things with cigarette smoke. Cause I, in the same vein for me growing up in the sixties, it was also a house full of smoking people, which I hated. I hated the smell of cigarette smoke. My brother and I both never smoked. We're never enrolled in like, oh, this is great because it always stank. The car smelled, the furniture smelled, everything smelled like cigarettes all the time. And for me, there's nothing worse. I, there must be second. This is my part of secondhand smoking is that. Mm-hmm. 
And so we've changed the numbers. Talk about the numbers in cigarette smoking and how, how has that happened and how did that – is it still going that direction of less and less every year? Yes. Uh, can you imagine back in, in that era and right up until 1988 is when smoking was finally banned on airlines. Can you imagine taking a transatlantic or even a flight from Wisconsin or Chicago to, to Orlando on a plane trapped in this, this <laughs> aluminum tube with smokers on board? Wow. The, the idea yeah. of how yeah. we used to poison ourselves and poison each other was pretty, pretty brutal. Uh, but if we look at how the the timeline around uh, smoking, 1964 is when the Surgeon General came out with uh, his report that said, you know, smoking is not not such a great idea. Um, I was born in 1967. At that time, 72% of the adult males smoked, and today, here we are, 52 years later, 72% of the adult males don't smoke. Well, the timeline starts with that Surgeon General's report in 1964 as we got smarter. And, you know, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. The Stone <laughs> Age ended because we got smarter along the process here. But we didn't have the – Al Gore hadn't invented the Internet yet, so we didn't have this rapid flow of information that we have today. But in this in this gap between uh, where we are today and, uh, you know, 1964, a lot of things have happened where we've looked at the health consequences of smoking from a, a more critical eye rather than smoking being a glamorous pastime that was cool, hip, and sexy, to in 88, banning it on airlines, and the the real big moment here was in 1997, the Master Tobacco Settlement, where we said no more no more advertising for smoking. We are going to focus on education and bring the education, not just to teens and preteens. We're going to bring it all the way down to the kindergarten and pre-K level and teach kids the dangers of smoking. And now here we are 25 years after the, the widespread changes in smoking and 72% of the adult males don't smoke. We've brought the message home, and that is where I get into the final uh, portion of Look What Dragged the Cat In. We already have a model that exists today because the Surgeon General came out with his report on drinking, on alcohol use, not just alcohol use the way I used to use it, but alcohol use even in this so-called moderation, and said, look, this is a big health concern to or or." Two hospital admissions every minute are alcohol related. So, if we're looking at solving our healthcare problem, and aside from the disease of addiction, aside from the opioid crisis, if we're looking at solving a healthcare problem, we got to stop putting people in the hospital. And the aging baby boomers aren't drowning the system. People, the the healthcare system is swimming in alcohol. Forty percent of the general hospital use or general use hospital beds are going to treat alcohol related complications. So there, there's a connection there from the Surgeon General standpoint, which was made in, in 2017. And now here we're starting to see a sea change where we can implement the same, uh, same recipe that we use for tobacco and uh, have the same results with alcohol. That would be amazing. And, and and at this point, I have to toss in the because uh, I just heard this. Uh, this just happened the other day. That Pard Purdue Pharma, the maker, the creators of the opioid OxyContin, has mm -hmm. reached a two hundred and fifty two hundred and seventy million dollar civil settlement with the state of Oklahoma. Yeah, so, I read that too. And I thought, and this is the family. This is the Sackler family, who is, I think, uh, has an estimated wealth of like thirteen billion. And they really are the people responsible for marketing the, I can't use that word on air, insert your expletive of choice, the bejeez out of uh, oxycodone and, and those drugs. Mm -hmm. and, and now they're paying a civil fine. So there, there's, there is a correlation, at least in my mind, between the normalization of alcohol into the pharmaceutical world of well, your doctor told you to take this. This is okay. It's still mm – -hmm. I can't imagine what the – you know, in, in another 15 years, you'll write a book, maybe 10 years, maybe eight years, maybe mm -hmm. next week. You're a book-writing guy. 
uh, about busy this, next week. <laughs> okay, <laughs> about this very thing of I wonder what the total cost to the society of the results of people ODing on opioids and mm-hmm. or the amount of complications created from overdosing on opioids or just being on opioids for too long because they're not really designed they weren't really ever intentioned to be used on a long-term basis mm-hmm. so i uh, think that's an interesting flag in the ground of this occurring mm-hmm. to the purdue pharma uh, the the numbers are out on that and the estimate is eight billion a year um goes to uh cleaning up what the cat dragged in with this opioid crisis and that number has gone up and the the crisis by by the timeline really began around 2006 2007 uh really came to a head in 2008 when the when the economy tanked and uh then kept on growing to the state that it is today it's plateaued some with all of these responses all these cleanup methods that we've decided we've designed to uh keep this crisis from getting worse but the the numbers um have plateaued they haven't gone down um when you when you bring up the sackler family and purdue pharma uh you look at that settlement and yeah the pharmaceutical company they i won't say they made a mistake they they screwed up they straight out screwed up on this because they're marketing uh these suits allege and going back to 2007 they've been fined for the for sketchy marketing so are their hands clean heck no um, but what did Purdue Pharma do? They created a drug exactly what we asked for, for chronic pain sufferers. So I, we can we could go after the deep pockets of the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma all we want. Where does that begin to stop the crisis? It doesn't. These are aberrato responses. These are cleaning up what the cat dragged in rather than uh, you know, looking for what dragged the cat in. I, I think that, uh, boy, I hope that some of that money makes it back to the families who've lost a loved one. I, realistic, the realist in me says that ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. But settling for $270 million is probably about what it would have cost in lawyering for Purdue anyway. So they, they've, they've stopped the bleeding on that one. And to to their credit or to the, the sarcastic credit of them, they, they have the pockets, they have the wealth to do it. Uh, doesn't make it right, but uh, they, they did what we asked them to do. We, we didn't tell their marketers to be deceptive to the doctors. We have a lot of trust in our doctors. You're absolutely right on that, uh, Richard, and, and we should. But they can't know everything. There's got to be a level of, of uh, personal accountability as well in, in taking our doctor's advice and seeking a second opinion or, or looking at what they're telling us to do. And uh, you know, that, that part of the equation, I, I feel very sensitive about touching. But when it gets down to pointing the finger at the pharma company or a doctor who may have overprescribed, nah, let's let's instead of this blame game, let's look at what causes a, a crisis and try to prevent the next one from happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and pain management is really tricky. Uh, meaning, you know, if you have a break or a tear or a burn or a cut or a some sort of incident, you know, where your head hits something hard, that's an obvious thing in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Whereas pain is so, we don't have a measurement system for pain, really. I mean, there are mm-hmm. some systems, but Western medicine really doesn't use them. And do you think it would be beneficial? It would, it would help in management. I know this is not directly in your book, but do you think this would be beneficial if we had doctors that were really trained and specialized in pain management? They would be busy guys and, and women if we had that, that special. We, we do actually have pain specialists, but the, that's kind of a, a, a dirty word these days being that, that pain specialist because a lot of these pill mills have been um, you know, masquerading as uh, as pain clinics and that, again not to not to ruin the punch bowl of, of pain clinics they have a legitimate reason for existence but the the issue right there as you spelled it out is that we don't have a measure for pain where we could do much much better is look at 
pain management as as as, as the science that it is, and say, okay, there there is a a chronic pain situation where, okay, we've got to knock down this pain so we can work on it instead of band-aiding it until our, our tolerance goes up and then we got to find another band-aid, uh, look at ways to correct the pain. When we get into pain though, uh, and as, as you're well aware that there's the physical pain, which people are treating with Oxycontin or uh, alcohol, and there's the mental, the emotional pain, which is what leads people to the disease of addiction by overuse. They don't want to feel the emotional pain from trauma, whether it's childhood or adult trauma. So they they put this Band-Aid on that we've been taught to self-prescribe for. And you know, if we look at the notion of separating emotional pain and physical pain, physical pain as a specialty, great idea, but not broad enough. We're, we're not going to band-aid everything. Let's get to uh, some of the great rituals of Eastern medicine, whether it's acupuncture, acupressure, et cetera, where we can get in and look at what fixing what is wrong and, on a neurological basis uh, or just in general physiology, cure or treat the pain rather than band-aid it would be a great idea. I worked with a doctor in Northern California, actually in Santa Rosa, California, that had gone to school, had become a osteopathic surgeon, and d- did that practice for a while, for a number of years. And then he went back to school and got his degree as a chiropractor because he wanted to learn more about the body. Mm-hmm. And then he studied acupuncture, and he had a clinic in Santa Rosa that was just jammed with – he was just jammed. This is almost 10 years ago. And he was a pain management specialist, and he did have a, he had exactly the kind of setup that you're talking about, or would be a fantasy setup, where mm-hmm. he had a resident acupuncturist, he had a resident therapist, he himself did work, uh, but his primary thing was pain management, but in a really broad view, highly comprehensive. I mean, he was an osteopathic surgeon, so he really understood the structure of the body of that in chiropractic. And you would go in, and it would do a, would be a big intake of information, and it was a longer protocol. It wasn't a here's this, go away, I'll see. You know, it wasn't a 15 minute visit. It was a long process, and he was very successful, had a great success rate. But then the insurance industry got wonky and didn't like some of the things he was doing in terms of you know well, you can't you're seeing people too long and you know that kind of bureaucracy. <laughs> But, I mean, it was amazing to see somebody who that's really what his whole clinic was about, was about pain management. So I've seen it in action in the way that you're talking about where you have a bigger view. You aren't just going, I have 15 minutes with you. This is what I can give you now. Here, take this. Go away. Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's, that's the, from my view, the responsibility of the medical side is that – is the resolution. We don't allow doctors the time necessary to really work with somebody or say, you need some therapy, try some acupuncture. You know, there's various ways to go, but it still goes back to what we talked about earlier about the normalization of being altered mm-hmm. by alcohol. Alcohol has always been kind of the gateway into everything or the normalization of, Oh, it's, now we have a trend where because cannabis has become legalized, and I'm a, I'm, I've done a bunch of shows on medical cannabis because for a medication, cancer and all sorts of conditions, I'm a big fan, especially mm-hmm. for herbalists. However, now we have a trend where we see people that are cannabis smokers are going, well, yeah, you can drink and drive, or you blah, 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 you know, and they're, they're, they're referring to, and most of the cannabis people are not drinkers. They're mostly smokers mm-hmm. so it's exactly. a funny thing to see them using alcohol as like the poster child for well they can do it yeah they, they the, this whole comparison between recreate <clears throat> excuse me i apologize for that richard uh, this whole comparison between recreational use of weed and recreational use of alcohol is like debating on which side of the titanic was safer <laughs> we, we, we're going to go down. Okay. And that, that's not a, a doomsday uh, prediction or anything like this, but we have a, we have a problem with the 
with the drug that we've legalized. And by the way, I'm not in favor of prohibition of, of any of this stuff. It was a failed mistake, or it did have its successes, but by and large, it's viewed as a failure. And America is built on, uh, yeah, we we can do, we have our free will. And if somebody wants to drink alcohol, by all means, I'm not going to be the guy standing, waving my finger, saying no. Um, know the facts about the drug you're putting in your body is what I'm getting at. But with <clears throat> With this drug that we've legalized, we don't have our arms around this thing. It's costing us $250 billion a year, and we want to legalize another recreational drug? Uh, I don't know about that. It's, it's, it's sketchy at best. And if you look at the people who are in favor of legalizing recreational use, and I do separate the two terms, recreational and medical, uh, legalizing recreational use, they, they fall into two camps. First of all, the people who benefit financially from the commercial availability of that drug. And second of all, the people who want to smoke weed and not get busted. So we have two very defined camps here where we, we use a lot, of, uh, a lot of tactics or they use a lot of tactics and a ton of money to justify another, legalizing another substance for recreational use. Medical use, we better study the heck out of, of marijuana. We've, we've seen what, it, what uh, CBD can or has the potential to do. Uh, the FDA has already approved uh, a CBD derivative. Uh, again, I'm not talking about THC. I'm talking about the other active components in here, not the, just the psychoactive one. But you know, it's been approved by the FDA for treatment of certain seizure disorders. We need to continue that kind of groundbreaking research into uh, what can what can this plant-based uh, remedy cure, whatever term you want to use. What can it do when we take the the psychoactive part out of it? And maybe there's even a, a medical use for the psychoactive part. Um, hasn't borne out in in research, at least not to my knowledge. But look at people suffering from PTSD, and that there's uh, there's some basis for explore exploration in there as well. I hate to see people suffer, so why not? Let's study for medical use, but recreational use, uh, sketchy at best. At best, and also there is a very tricky area in the e-cigarette world where I see a lot of issues. This is sort of a backdoor resurgence of the smoking world. We okay. have a lot of younger people who are taking up e-cigarettes because it's so easy just to have it with you. You don't have to light something up and dispose of the ash. You can just slip it in your pocket, and you know suddenly you're smoking e-cigarette. And it's like just because it's an e-cigarette, it's still tobacco. It's still carcinogenic. It's still what? Mm-hmm. And you know people using dabs in there to to get their THC in a discreet way. It's very funny that you mentioned this. this uh, absolutely explosive growth of vaping. Uh, my lady and I were talking about it the other day. Uh, and, you know, we don't know. We don't know basically what this is doing to us. The the clinical research has said, yeah, it's bad for you. We don't know long term. What if a generation from now, all these kids who are smoking, suddenly uh, we have a, an explosion of early onset dementia, which is, you know, this the drugs in vaping affect the same parts of the brain, uh, but to a much more severe level, according to clinicians. So that's not unfeasible. We don't know what this vaping phenomenon is going to do further down the road. And wouldn't it be scary if that kind of scenario develops around this alternative use of, of more recreational mind-altering drugs? Well, and, uh, when I was talking about e-cigarettes, I was really talking about the tobacco side of vaping. I wasn't okay. even talking about the cannabis side. I was talking about the tobacco side where it's tremendously easy now to get kids enrolled in and because it's a cool thing to do. There is that factor, <clears throat> not unlike the alcohol world. It's a cool thing to do. And you have kids who are, and I'm old, so I'll use the term kids. I mean, you have young people. Let's try that. Young people always makes me feel even older. Uh, young people um, who are vaping. Get off my lawn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, who are vaping tobacco substances. And, and everything you said about we know nothing about the results. We know nothing about the long-term effects, especially because it's a – 
purified form of something. I have no idea what. I don't know that anybody really does other than the selling boatloads of it because now it's so easy just to have everything that I said about having that pen in your pocket, having it in your backpack, having it wherever it is. It's easy to take it out. You see kids walking on the street smoking. You have no idea what the long-term effect of vaping tobacco is that I know of. I mean, we, we know what tobacco did. Now, what about this? This amazing thing, just because it's the technology, it's the hip new cool thing to do because it's a hip new cool thing of technology. What's the long-term effect of that? I can only imagine the numbers uh, down the road. I mean, it's a, it's a shocking idea. It's shocking, frightening, all of the above. It, it, it could go very south very quickly in what we thought was going to be the, uh, air quotes here, safe alternative to uh, burning tobacco. It's, uh, it, it, I'm, I'm troubled every time that I see the youth using this as, uh, okay, this is cool. And uh, more specifically to the point of all my research over the past decade and 12 years, um, you know, the alcohol industry is preying on the same bunch of kids by, uh, by these Alka-Pops, these malt beverages that are put in shiny, fancy cans with wild colors and ex- uh, extraordinary flavors. You know, they're, they're targeting kids. So they're trying to groom the next generation of drug users. And it's the same, uh, same tactic that these, uh, like Juul and all these other brands of vape pens are going after. They're, they're trying to, uh, trying to normalize and glamorize something that isn't uh, normal or glamorous. Well, especially in the, yeah, yeah. It puts me in a bad mood because, uh, I mean, you know, just the idea of the quantity, because people so casually vape, and again, I'm still just only talking about tobacco. Cannabis Mm -hmm. is a whole other conversation, but I mean, they so casually vape because it's so clean, it's so easy. Um, Mm -hmm. It's so, it seems, and it is so hip and so cool, and it's being marketed, just as you said, in the same way as these the power drinks that now we have a low, you know, it's kind of like a gate beer is a gateway into like getting into hard liquor uh, in a certain way. And they're marketing mm-hmm. these products that, as you say, are disguised, they're disguised beverages. It's peach flavored something or uh, which always sounds gross to me, but mm-hmm. I mean, just all these ways of getting it into getting people habitized, habituized, habituated, habituated, to habituated. consuming it so casually like, Oh yeah, I only did that four times last week or, or something. Um, and that actually goes to one of the parts in, in your book, and, and I've heard you talk about this, is your description of, you know, alcohol is a drug, alcohol is a toxin, alcohol is a known carcinogen. It's increased risk of 60 diseases beyond cancer and alcoholism. Alcoholism is the disease. And then you talk about driving in life. And I think what surprised me the most was when I equivocated out I feel the same way about sugar and refined carbohydrates Mm -hmm. that we have this you know the the part of I think an action that I know Sherry and I have talked about a lot is self-care at some point you have to take responsibility and kind of back up and go you know, sugar is just as toxic as alcohol. And in a certain way, sugar in the body acts like alcohol very much. It converts into, a, you know, a kind of alcohol. Mm-hmm. So it's equally as toxic, and it's marketed in a very similar sexy, you know, I don't know. It's a whole yeah, other well, show. But it we, just blows we my think, mind. Yeah, we think it's cute to have a sweet tooth. My God, I've got one. And, you know, but... The fact is that is a really unhealthy tooth to be, be be sporting because of what refined sugar can do to ordinarily healthy human tissues. Just in the same uh, description that I use for alcohol, alcohol is no good for ordinarily healthy human tissue in any amount. Yeah, and that's the way I feel about you know. I mean, I I too can have. Uh, having been in the restaurant business, my sh- my sweet level is not particularly higher, but it's I, I'm not a junk food person. Like you'll never find me eating a Twinkie or some kind of junky thing. Although I might hurt myself with a bag of M and M's, I will admit that, or on the holiday. Oh, okay. But that's yeah. equally acceptable. That's another gateway into 
and I know people who drink who also have sugar issues because it's they don't realize it maybe, but they're very similar in how they act in the body, and they're both mm-hmm. deleterious in a long term effect. They're not good. Right. So I, I, I've been to many, many recovery meetings and recovery groups where there's a bowl of sugar on the table, uh, candies, and all throughout the meeting you're unwrapping. You hear this unwrapping while we're talking about our disease and our recovery, but yet we're uh, we're creating or feeding another problem altogether. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it's ironic that you you point out or that this uh, this recovery from alcohol, we have this substitute. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I can't say I want to. I want to punish anybody or say you have to have a bowl of carrot sticks because I think that's oh. equally as like, oh come on, not the carrot sticks. Can't we have something else besides the carrot sticks? Please. <laughs> but I mean, it's it really is about ultimately everything that you're talking about, and this is why I like I liked the book so much, was it really is about us stepping back and wanting to be healthy. And I think the the positive gateway of changing people's attitude is very much, as you said about the smoking industry, how we've changed that, mm-hmm. how how down through the years that has changed, and making people aware of the cost, what it costs us. If if people actually, I mean, at some point it seems kind of like it has to go up against the lobbying industry of the lobbyists for the pharmaceutical industry and the lobbyists for the alcohol industry versus the healthcare industry. You know, somewhere that's going to have to become what I would call the clash of the titans of like, here's how much it costs ERs every year because somebody's falling over and is a second, you know, a diabetic two because they've been drinking alcohol. There is a, there can be a correlation there. There's a huge correlation there. Yeah. And, and I think it's going to come down to the clash of the titans because it's going to be about healthcare at some point. Because uh, there has been massive changes in the smoking industry, although, as I say, the e-cigarettes are really a evil backdoor. That's a, um, that's a step backward for certain. And and where do we? I can't believe we're here. We're here already. Where do you do you teach online classes? Do you talk about this more out in the? I know you present and you're a speaker, you're a keynote speaker, but do you mm-hmm. teach any classes yourself directly, or do you refer people, that kind of thing? Um, I refer. I, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a counselor. I do work individually as an inter- interventionist and uh, as a as a strong proponent of recovery groups such as Men for Sobriety, Women for Sobriety, Alcoholics Anonymous, and SMART, um, and, and anything to get people who are struggling with a disease of addiction, I, I get them uh, hooked up with the right resources. It's important to me from a from a recovering individual standpoint. But I, I speak at conferences. I have my website. Um, I I do what I can to help educate and to help change the dialogue from what people think alcohol does for them to what it really does to them. Where would you like people to find your book? I I really, again, I have no vested interest here in the sense Mm -hmm. that I'm not getting paid to say this. I think it's a really great read. And from my view, with a little bit of the bigger picture in your mind of this isn't just about alcohol. This is really about the health care. This is about nutrition. This is about taking care of yourself. I mean, really, it is talking about alcohol, but it's talking about such a big picture of health in America mm-hmm. that I cannot advocate for it enough. Thank you very much, Richard. I, I appreciate that. And, and coming from, like I said, the long legacy of, of excellence that your show has, it means a lot to hear that from you. My, my website is alcohologist dot com alcohol o g i s t dot com um, that's kind of the the hub of communicating with me and learning more about the books that I've brought forward uh, they're available everywhere that people buy books all five of the books are available on Amazon um, but also Barnes and Nobles Kobo iTunes uh, they're available even in your bricks and mortar bookstore they can order them in addition I just released in soft cover and in ebook format the latest book 
Look What Dragged the Cat In. I did that in advance of Alcohol Awareness Month, which begins April 1. And uh, so now the new book is available in all three formats as well. But anywhere you, you choose to buy your books, by all means, if they don't have it on the shelves, ask for it. And uh, uh, please uh, consider your, your health and not just uh, what we've been told about this drug. Really, I hadn't. I didn't pay attention to the Alcohol Awareness Month. This is releasing today, so that's perfect timing. This is great. It all worked out. I know we had some speed bumps getting to this day, but it all worked out to be like I think the perfect day to launch this. Everything so happens for a reason, Richard. <laughs> that's what they keep telling me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Scott. That was a great, great conversation about alcohol and everything that it entails and our society. Thanks, everybody. Have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you next week, or possibly on Tuesday we may have a show. I'm not sure right now. Okay, everybody. Bye-bye.